0: Okay, great. Welcome to day two of Calvinism. Yesterday we talked about total depravity, uh, and today we're going to talk about unconditional election. That leaves us with the lip on Friday, which is going to be really hard to cover, but that's okay. We'll do the best we can. Let me uh, let me pray for us. We'll get started. Father, thank you so much for bringing us here. Lord, it is so good to uh, to worship with your people. It's so good to see. Uh, I just love sitting and seeing uh, these students do their devotionals this morning and worshiping and asking great and hard questions. And Lord, it's, it's beautiful to see as uh, how you call people to yourself and are changing people. And I ask, Lord, uh, that you would continue to show us more and more all of your good work that you're doing in the lives of these students and help grow all of us us more and more into love for you and to know the love that you have for us. We pray that you would be with us today, with me as I teach this class, which is kind of difficult and heady stuff, and so help me to be clear and elucidate well the doctrines of grace that you've given to us in your word. I pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so a couple of things just from yesterday, oh good, as more people come in. Just from yesterday, you know, I had two really good questions about total depravity. One was the question... Um, okay, what about, hey Matt, what about free will? What about free will? And, uh, and, and here's what I'm saying. If we believe that we are unable to come to God, the biggest strike against our free will is not God. The biggest strike against our free will is sin. Sin, so, like Adam had the freedom to choose good or evil, God created a morally free creature. A morally free creature. But what Satan did in the garden was convince Adam that true freedom would come as he disobeyed God. And, oh hey, it turns out he's an adversary and a liar. And Adam and Eve... Bought the lie and actually went from being a free creature who can choose good or bad to being a creature who is now bound by their nature to choose bad and to choose and to resist God. So the strike against human freedom is not God, the strike against human freedom is the serpent. The serpent wants to bind you. This is why Jesus says, You are of your father, the devil, to the Pharisees and Sadducees in John chapter 8. The reason you are in bondage is not because of some system. What God is doing in salvation is He is freeing you from bondage. You are enslaved to sin in your natural state, and you need freedom. And so God has come to make you free. So that's why we can say of Jesus that the Son has come to make you free, and you will be free indeed. So freedom comes in Christ, true freedom. Um, and uh, you know what, I forgot what the other question was that I wanted to answer uh, really quickly I do want to reiterate again this is an intramural debate there are people who are coming from different sides of the theological spectrum who are going to disagree with some of the things that we say in here we are on their team, we are Christians we believe Jesus died and rose from the dead that is the most important part Jesus saves, not your theological system that doesn't save you, Jesus saves the Bible is preeminent over the system so all the time, go back to the Bible, ask God, wrestle with God, see what God says in his word. What we think, what I think we're doing is I think we are giving you information from the Bible to help you to grow in, your, in who you are as a Christian, and I think this will help you do that. I'm not trying to make you into little, um, into little, mean, little mean Calvinists. I'm trying to help assure you of your faith and salvation in the Lord. That's what we're trying to do. Um, so please push back, wrestle with me. And uh, and uh, and let's jump into unconditional election. Uh, so, unconditional election. The words election and predestination turns. It turns out they're in the Bible. Election, predestination. God choose chooses. He chose you before the foundation of the world. All of those things are in the Bible. So you can't say as a Christian that you don't believe in predestination. You can't say that because. These are words that God uses to describe what he does for, for you in salvation. You have to in not say, I don't believe in that. You have to figure out what does God mean when he says, I chose you, I elected you, I predestined you. And so what we're going to say today is that um, this is what election or predestination means. We, this is what the Calvinist says it means. God, from the foundations of the earth, chose those whom he desires for salvation. Not on the basis of any merit in them, but out of the sheer grace of his will. So a Calvinist will say that when we see those words, predestination, election, choosing, it is God's prerogative to choose unto salvation those whom he will. Now, I'll get into this in a second, but we... One of the reasons we think that there's lots of biblical evidence for that, which we'll go into, but one of the reasons that we think that this is really important is because what the Bible says about who you are in total depravity is that you can't choose God. So if God says, well, I'll let you make the choice, who's going to choose God? Nobody. Nobody will. So if God says, hey, you can choose, you can choose to follow me or not, Then nobody will. One of the assumptions that... and Oh, that was the other thing, and I think this is important. One of the assumptions in in Arminianism... Someone asked me, well, is there biblical evidence for Arminianism? And the answer is yes, with a caveat. The answer is yes, with a caveat. I don't want to caricature their position. But it mostly hinges on this idea, that if God says, follow me, or... Love your spouse as I've loved the church, or, um, or don't commit adultery, or you know whatever, or worship me or, or keep the Sabbath. If God commands something, an Armenian would say, if he commands it, then you must have some sort of ability, aided by divine grace, in order to fulfill that commandment. And a Calvinist says, actually, in your natural state, all of the commands of God, you can't obey. There's the rub. Do you see the rub? An Arminian will say, if God makes a command, then you in some way have the ability to fulfill that command or do that thing. And a Calvinist will say, no, there are other reasons that God issues a command. In fact, one of the most important reasons that God issues a command is to show you that you can't do it. So that you can be humbled and say, I need a Savior. So, so. Then, once in that command, hey, don't murder anyone. This is what's going on in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, is like, if you've if you've hated your brother in your heart, you've murdered. And all of a sudden, you can't say, "Oh, God commanded it; I can do it." Every single person says, "Oh my goodness, God commanded it, and I can't do it. I need someone." to take my place and do this for me, and it drives us to Jesus. And so any command that's issued by God will take us, one, to humility and repentance in Christ, because Jesus is the one that can fully and does fully obey all the commandments of God. And so now, through Jesus, a Calvinist can say, oh, because of Christ I've actually now been given freedom, and can start to follow the law. You see, so the difference is that Arminian puts everyone on the same page and says, if God commands it, you can do it. And the Calvinist says, no, 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 no. In your fallen state, you can't. In your redeemed state, you can begin to do it. And that transition happens in Christ. Okay. So... What I need to do today to show you um, to show you that God is in con- what I'm basically saying is that God is in c- control of your salvation. So I'm going to quickly show you that God is in control of your salvation because He's in control of everything. He's in control of everything. So this is what. So God is in- on your handout. You see this? God is in control. He never fails to accomplish what He sets out to do. Let me go to Isaiah 46 really quickly. calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Okay, God is saying, I am in control of everything that comes to pass, from the very end to the very beginning, from the very beginning to the very end. What I say, that's what goes. So Nebuchadnezzar, who is the most powerful ruler of the ancient world, who created the uh, who you know the hanging gardens of Babylon are in, are in Babylon, obviously the walls of Babylon, these amazing ancient wonders. he has more power and glory and might, He calls himself the King of Kings and the Lord of lords he 's looking over at his at everything that he has done and he 's saying, "I am like a god on this earth, and all of a sudden God's, god 's God humbles him, and he becomes like a beast of the field, and he goes out, and right, dew is on his back, you remember from Daniel. And then Nebuchadnezzar is returned to his senses after a season, and he praises and worship God, worships God. And this is what he says in Daniel four 3, uh, excuse me, 4.35, "...all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he, that is God, does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done?" God is in control of not only everything that happens in this world, but all the hosts of heaven too. Everything that God does or purposes comes to pass. He's in control. He's in control of the natural world. You can open up to almost any psalm and see this, but I'll just read some from Psalm 145, 147, 148. Um, You open your hand. You satisfy, satisfy the desire of every living thing. You give them their food in their season. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Going on. He makes, uh, excuse me, he sends out his command to the earth, his word runs swiftly, he gives snow like wool, he scatters frost frost like ashes, he hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs, going on, praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word, Everything that happens in the natural world, from the birth of animals to their death, from the tornadoes and the hurricanes, and when it rains and when it doesn't, happens because God has purposed it to happen. This is why Jesus says in Matthew ten twenty nine and 30, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. That is to say, even a little sparrow, does not die outside of the will of God the Father. I know when they are born, I know when they die, and everything is in my hands. God is also sovereign over human history. The boundaries and allotted periods of time, He has so decreed the beginning of the Babylonian Empire and its fall. The beginning of the Greek Empire and its fall. The beginning of America and its fall. Acts chapter 17 The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So who has determined the allotted periods and boundaries of the dwelling places of man and empires and nations? God. He's in control of that too. We know that he's in control of human history on a macro scale and even on a micro scale. Remember that guy Joseph right from the Old Testament in Genesis? Joseph was hated by his brothers because he was probably the most loved by his father. Excuse me, he was given a beautiful coat of some sort, maybe of many colors, and he had all these dreams where his brothers were going to bow down to him, and so his brothers conspired against him, sent him into slavery in egypt over time god 's hand is with Joseph, and Joseph rises becomes second only to Pharaoh himself, interprets pharaoh 's dreams and creates these storehouses to to uh, collect all of the grain in the abundant years, so that in the lean seven years, this is a really quick rendition of this story, so in the lean seven years, the people of Egypt would be saved from famine. And not only the people of Egypt would be saved from famine, but all of the countries and nations around the people of Egypt would be saved from famine. And this is what Joseph says. He's talking to his brothers, and he's talking both in terms of his own personal Salvation of the Lord, and also the salvation of all of these nations around him. As for you, you brothers, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive, even as they are today. In a micro level, this Joseph who goes down into the pit and up and rises again from the pit, who goes into slavery and comes to be the second command only to Pharaoh... In his personal story, God has so ordained it that all of these nations should be kept alive as all of the nations do not die in famine, but rather come and get bread from Egypt. Cool. So human decisions. Our free decisions are not independent of God. I had a lot of questions from this one, and so let me answer uh, this first. Every philosophical system is trying to figure out the connection between free will if any and determinism if any free will and that is are humans free do we are we really free or is there some sort of of necessity placed upon us right now we live in an era where we have got both of those both determinism is really strong and also human freedom is really strong human freedom the way that we think about human freedom in our current culture, is not really a good, it's not, it's not sound philosophy, it's just a general sense in our being that you're free to do whatever you want. It's not good philosophy, but mostly we believe you're free to do whatever you want in current American culture. The academy, especially the, the hard sciences, actually generally refuses that way of looking at the world, it's kind of interesting, and believes much more in a stronger determinism. One second. Much more in a stronger determinism. I'm going to read an evolutionary biologist who talks about strong determinism in your lives. That is, you don't have free will. He says, Anthony Cashmore says this, We live in an era when few biologists would question the idea that biological systems are totally based on the laws of physics and chemistry. He goes on to say, The reality is, not only do we have no more free will than a fly or a bacterium, in actuality we have no more free will than a bowl of sugar. The laws of nature are uniform throughout, and these laws do not accommodate the concept of free will. So, we are living in an era right now where we have both of these ideas, determinism free will. We have every single system from Aristotle to the present is trying to figure out if there's determinism in the universe or if there's freedom in the universe. And what... Calvinists say and what what scripture I think says is that it's really hard to figure out how they go together but yes you have real freedom because you're a person made in the image of God but at the same time because God is so much bigger and so much grander than we are He is determining And ordaining all that comes to pass. We don't know exactly how those two things work together. We just know that everything that happens, God ordains. And everything you do, you are not coerced to do. (sighs) Okay? And that is a mystery that I think the Bible teaches that we have to hold together. And I think... A Calvinist rightly A Calvinist falls off the wagon a little bit by saying that you, know, like you have no freedom. I think that's actually wrong. Like you're a person made in the image of God. You have some you have freedom. You don't have freedom to choose God because you're bound by your sinful nature. But you have real freedom in this world. And at the same time, we know that God ordains whatsoever comes to pass. And we see this in the scripture in many places. I'll just read a couple. Cyrus is called by name centuries before he was born in Isaiah 44 and it's prophesied that he is going to end the Israelite exile. Cyrus freely chose to do that and God ordained that to happen. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. People have free choices, but it's God's ordination of these things that, that is also at play here. Um... Not only, does, not only do people make choices that are under God's ord, ordaining of all things, God also ordains sin in some way. He does not author sin. He does not make you sin. But, he, but you freely choose to sin, and God in His power and control over the world uses your sin in such a way as to always bring about His purposes. So for instance, in Samson... His disobedience, his breaking of the Nazarite vow, in, that you see in Judges, his desire to marry a Philistine is against what God has told him to do. But then we are given insight: God has used Samson's sin so that he can, find, so that God can bring about the destruction of the Philistines. Samson sins so that God can get the glory by destroying the Philistines. If you remember some of the things that Samson does, he. He lights foxes' tails on fire, and they go and like destroy all the grain. And then he he sinfully goes to Delilah, and it's through Delilah that he's captured. But in that sin, that God has ordained, Samson brings down the house on the god is it Dagon. Is that right? And uh, and all the Philistines die. And so even the sinful choices of humanity are in God's control. Yes? Question. Whenever we do, He's still going to make it. He's still bring it, using that to bring about your salvation. Let's see if I can explain it a little bit better. So God has a will. God's revealed will for you. Don't break my commandments. This is revealed will. But He also has a hidden will, whereby when you do break His commandments, He will bring it about for your good and salvation and His glory. He uses your sin sinlessly, I think R.C. Sproul says. And that's a hard pill to swallow, but let me give you a great example. What was the worst sin that was ever committed in human history? The crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God. Was there sin? There was, of course, sin involved in, the, in that, right? Who sinned? Well, Pontius Pilate sinned and the Gentiles sinned. The people were crying out for his crucifixion sinned. The Sadducees and the Pharisees who got together, they were sinning. But what does Acts 4.28 say? For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Peter doesn't leave anyone out. Herod, Pontius Pilate, Gentiles, people of Israel. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God predestined that all of these people would do sin and evil to the Son of God. He predestined that to happen. And through that awful and terrible act, He brings about the salvation of the world. So when you're asking, can God still love me? Even though I've done this thing, this awful and terrible thing, you can look back and say, God even will bring about His glory and my salvation even despite the fact that I have done this awful and terrible thing. Should you, like, sin that grace may abound, Paul asks in Romans 6? No. No, don't just don't just be like, oh, God's going to make it okay. No, don't do that. That's silly. That would be disobeying God's commands. But when it does happen, you can be assured that God, out of his great love for you, will bring it about for his glory and your salvation. Yeah. So what about like, like extreme examples like the Holocaust and like school shootings? How yeah, I mean, so the question, the question is that what, what about extreme examples? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. That's the simple answer. Um, but and, and here's why. The only thing worse than those things being ordained by God is those things not being ordained by God. And here's what I mean by that. If they're not ordained by God, then there is absolutely no pr- point or purpose or hope for those things. Right? There's no point or purpose or hope for those things. There can be no redemption or salvation from those things because... They were just random acts of terror and God's not going to use them. But if we know that God has ordained even the most awful things that come to pass, we know that God can bring about something good from them. God, if you think about it, maybe be careful here because we don't bind God. The only sinless person that's ever lived is Jesus, right? So right now on the earth, the only raw material that God has to work with is sin. That's the only raw material that he has. So he has... Like, redemption happens because sin is is first. So God is going to work through all of the raw material of sin to bring redemption. And that happens in the small stuff of you just being a bad kid in your youth group or a disobedient child and also in the big stuff. If that's not true... If that's not true, then where you're left with is an impotent God who you don't know if he can actually bring salvation about from the raw material of sin. You're left with a God who you're not sure if he can actually save. Uh, in other words, you're left with the God of Macbeth at the very end of Macbeth. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It's a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Because God is in control, we know that things don't signify nothing. Because God is in control, we know that something good can come out of even the worst thing. Because that's the pattern. Something good, the salvation of people, came out of the worst thing, the destruction of the Son of God. Good question. I'm not gonna answer more answer any more questions about that for now though, Alex. Let's let's continue to move on because I need to actually get into the biblical material here. So the god so the Bible teaches that God is in control of everything and He's also in control of your salvation. I'm going to just read uh, a couple of passages. I've got some Old Testament passages in there that you can peruse, but I'm going to read some New Testament passages. And I just want you to listen for God choosing you, God predestining you, God electing you. Listen for these words. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So Paul is looking at believing Christians and saying, hey, God chose you to be saved. Uh, Jesus in John's gospel says this to his disciples, excuse me, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So he's saying point blank to those apostles, you didn't choose me, I chose you matthew twenty two fourteen many are called, but few are chosen. That is in this whole mass of humanity that hears the gospel. Not everyone responds in faith, but God chooses those who will respond ephesians one one through five I know i 'm going quickly. I just need to give you the biblical data. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. When did He choose us? before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. What things does God work according to the counsel of His will? Everything. All things. So Jesus says to a group of people who will ultimately, many of them will leave him because this is a hard saying, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall not or never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I don't like that passage for this. Why did I put that passage in here? Strike this from the record. <laughs> I wanted to go on to further on in that passage. Uh Everyone who uh, I wanted to go on more in that passage. I. Uh, Okay, strike all of this. I'm going to go to another passage. <laughs> <laughs> Romans 8. It's in there somewhere, but it's too quick and I printed the wrong thing. Uh, Romans 8, 28 through 30. Let's go to that one. You've probably heard this one before. Romans 8. I know that it's in this one. Okay. And we know that for those who love God... This, kind of, this is a chain that goes from eternity past to eternity future. Those who I, will, who I have predestined to life will one day be glorified. So you can't say, well, God has predestined everyone, but some don't believe. No, the ones that He's predestined unto life will make it to the very end because they will be justified, sanctified, glorified. So let me do a couple, of mo- a couple more, and I know these ones work. Matthew eleven twenty seven. Um, in fact, I'm going to go a little earlier. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So the Son is choosing to reveal the Father to some people. And the Son thanks the Father that he has been con- the Father has been concealed from some, pe- some people. That's kind of intense. Um, so, over and over, and that's just a smattering of verses, and I need to kind of go a little deeper into some of the reasons why God elects and why He doesn't elect. That's a smattering of verses, but if you read your Bible... You will see, and you're you're cued in to these words, chosen, elected, predestined. You will see over and over and over again that God chose you to be the first fruits, that God elected you unto salvation, that God predestined you according to the working of His will, that God, before the foundation of the earth, has chosen some to be saved. It happens over and over and over again. And we know this is necessary because, as I said at the beginning of this class, if the choice was up to you... You wouldn't come to God, no one will. So in the mass of humanity who is running away from God, God chooses to bring those whom he loves back to himself. So then the question is, well, well, what is the reason not that God saves us? A lot of people have tried to answer the question, well, why does God choose some and not others? And one of the answers that some people has, have given is, well, God chooses good people. It's like God is going around in the fruit section of a grocery store and picking up apples and being like, oh, that's a good one, I'll take that one. Oh, that's a nice one, I'll take that one. Or avocados, which are impossible to tell what, if they're good or not. <laughs> Unless you're God. <laughs> and uh, No, actually, you, never mind. We'll talk about that later. Um, but that, But the biblical evidence says that that's not true. There's no merit in you that God says, oh, I'm going to choose that person because he's good. This is what... Um, what was Abraham doing before God chose him? He was worshipping idols. He was worshipping idols in the Fertile Crescent somewhere, Joshua, Joshua, the book of Joshua tells us. He was an idolater, a pagan who worshipped other gods. It's not like he was doing all these amazing things. No, just because of his love, God chose him. 2 Timothy 1, 8, and 9... See if I can get there quickly. Says this... Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but why? Because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages, of, ages began. It's not that God looks down through the corridor of time and says, I will choose the people who are good enough. No. He doesn't choose us according to our works. He chooses us according to his grace. Well, option two, maybe God doesn't choose you based on your merit. Maybe he chooses you based on foreseen faith. That he looks down through the corridor of time and says, Oh, okay, this person is going to believe in me, so I'm going to choose them. What does the biblical evidence say? First, First, this is a problem because that actually turns faith into a good work. It becomes something meritorious in you. That God says, oh, that's, a, that's, that's something that's good in you that is going to cause me to choose you. But the, so that would be theologically incorrect and logically incorrect, but it's also biblically incorrect. This is what Acts 13.48 says, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So faith comes after God's appointing you to eternal life. Faith is the evidence that you were appointed to eternal life. It is not the cause of you being appointed to eternal life. In Acts 16.4, the Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Why did Lydia respond in faith to the message of the gospel? Because God previously opened her heart to respond. So we see, faith is not the grounds of your election, it's the evidence of your election. Because you were elected, and we'll get into this on Friday, in irresistible grace, God sent His Spirit to open your heart so that you could believe. It's not that you would believe in yourself, and God is choosing you based on your belief. It's that God, who chose you, also appointed the Holy Spirit to open your heart so that you would believe. So, faith is a gift of God, not the merit of salvation. So, what is the reason? And I will. So, after I do the reason, I will. What is the reason God, that God chooses you? It's not your. It's not how good you are. It's not your works. It's not your faith. The merit, or excuse me, the reason that God chose you is all within God. So let's look at. Let's look at Deuteronomy seven seven. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. So that's the reason why not. It's not because you were like a great nation or something like that. So what is the reason? Verse 8, but it is because the Lord loves you. Now, if you're like thinking about that, you're like, well, that's not a good reason, I think. But when you go deeper, in, you, God is just saying, I chose you because I chose you. I chose to love you because I chose to love you. And at first, you're like, well, what do you mean? Like, that sounds circular. But then I want you to think about it for a second. Let, let me give you an illustration. What if, you're, what if you're talking to your dad and you're like, Hey, Dad, or Hey, Mom. Why do you love me? What if you said that? And your parents then started talking to you about why they loved you, and they said, Well, I love you because you get really good grades in school. I love you because you're nice to your sister. I love you because you're the fastest person on the soccer team. I love you and then give X, Y, or Z. Where does that put you in relation to your parents? That puts you in a really bad spot, doesn't it? You know how much money has been spent on counseling in the United States because that's the way families relate to each other? That is not the way a family should relate to to each other. The answer and the only answer, Dad, why do you love me? Because I love you. That's the only possible answer there, because I love you. If the, if the reason that God loves you is in anything in you, then you have got to be the kind of person that maintains your faith, that does all the good things, that goes to church, that reads your Bible, that, that does it well enough to continue to merit and gain God's love for you, and that puts you in no assurance whatsoever. That's not love. That's not love that's working for love. And working for love isn't love. God, why do you love me? Because I love you and I've set my heart upon you and I love you. Circular? Yes. Absolutely. The only hope that we have. The only hope that we have. You want assurance of your salvation? You want hope in the gospel? Why do you love me, God? Because I love you. Because I love you. That's it. So, before I take a couple of questions, and I will, sorry let me say let me do let me let me answer some objections to election. I can't believe you believe you say that God loves you uh, that God has elected you. you must be the most spiritually arrogant person in the, on the planet you calvinist I've heard that before Wait, word word. no maybe not word for word <laughs> calvinist. <laughs> you calvinist <laughs> <laughs> Asbestos, Calvinist. <laughs> um uh I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. No, so the the answer that object the answer to that objection is actually no. Here's the deal: there's nothing better about me than anyone else in this world. You can take Joe Schmo, non-Christian, and you you just say, look, he might even be a better person than me. You know, he might be smarter than me. He might know how to do things better than I do. There's nothing in me, there's nothing in me that makes me better than anyone else. The Calvinist can truly say that. Can truly say that I'm no better. I'm just better off because God's love. I'm no better. I'm just better off. I think that if you don't believe it, it actually can lead you to spiritual pride and arrogance. Why? Because if you don't say that the only reason I'm a Christian is because of God's choice, you have to say there's something in you that chose God, that took one step or 20 steps or 100 steps to God. So you have to say, I am better than Joe Schmo, non-Christian. Why? Because I was smarter, I received the gospel. Because I was more humble, I humbled myself before God. Because I was better, I did better works. A Calvinist system should drive you to humility. You're no better. You're just better off. I, I, I just really believe a non-Calvinist system or way of thinking about salvation will actually drive you to spiritual pride. I am better in some way. It's only a little bit better. But you know what? That's all we need anyways to look down our noses at other people. It's right, right? Like, like, well, at least I'm a really bad person, but at least I didn't do that bad thing. Man, you can look down in your noses and snobbery. That's exactly what Richie Sessions was talking about last night. So no, it doesn't lead to spiritual arrogance at all. Unfortunately, it does sometimes, but it shouldn't. It shouldn't. It should, should you just lead to true spiritual humility? Two, election is unfair. How can you? How can you say that God says you're not on the list? Great question. What are the wages of sin? Death. If God related to humanity with fairness, what would humanity receive from God? Death, hell, judgment, wrath. You don't want a God of fairness. You want a God of mercy. You want a God of mercy. If God is being completely fair, then we would all run headlong over the cliff. But it's because of God's mercy that we're saved. You want a God of fairness. Not a God of fairness, a God of mercy. You don't want to get what you deserve. So, let me give you an illustration. You and four friends are going to rob a bank. You've got the masks on and the guns and everything. And I see you. I'm like, oh my goodness, that's an old youthie of mine. What did I do wrong? <laughs> How did he go down this path? so I see you and I come up to you and I tackle you and I hold you down and I'm like don't do this this is going to destroy your life and your four friends go in and you, they rob the bank and they get caught by the police and they get thrown in jail did they get what they deserved yes. but you didn't get what you deserved because out of mercy I held you back and I said don't do it did the, your, do your four friends have any reason to be mad at me for not tackling them They don't leave it. Yeah, they, probably not. I mean, it would be... If they were like, hey, why didn't you tackle me? I would be like, hey, why did you rob a bank? <laughs> like, they got what they deserved. But out of mercy, I held you down and stopped you so that you wouldn't get what you deserved. That's mercy. That's what you need. Well, okay. Well, what if... What if someone wants to believe in Jesus but isn't admitted into heaven? Uh, what if they're not one of the elect? And the answer is the, that passage that I was reading from John. That's where that, this is where this comes in. Is that Jesus says, everyone who comes to me I will never cast out. It's just that everyone who comes to me, the Father, has enabled them to come to me. So the premise is wrong, right? It's not like heaven is this and party, I mean, it is a rocking party. But it's, not like, but it's not like there's a VIP club and everyone's just like, let me in, let me in. And Jesus is the bouncer at the door going like, pew, pew, pew. No, it's, it's, it's that there is this great place called Fellowship with God that people know about and they're like, I don't want that. They're running away from the VIP club. It's not that, but everyone who turns around, turns around because God in his grace turns them around and they walk to the door and Jesus is like, welcome. Come in, we've been waiting for you. We're ready for you. We've got a room, right, two Sessions? We've got a room ready for you, right? Everyone's running away from the VIP club, and God in His mercy says, "Hey, come!" And you are like, "Okay, I don't know what I'm getting myself into, but oh wow, that's how it works." Okay, it is. I'm really sorry. We, yeah, whatever. Um, are there any, <laughs> are there any questions? That you have. Yes? Why doesn't God just pick everyone? Why doesn't God just pick everyone? Uh, you can leave now. No, I'm just joking. No, uh, that's a great question. Okay, so... First, we don't know. So, Paul says in Romans 9, um, What shall we say then? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. He says also... In Romans 9, that what if God, this Paul is saying is about God, what if God, in order to make his, uh, in order to make, oh, I need to read it. I can't do it off the top of my head. I haven't memorized this yet. Yeah, sorry. Okay, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? Who are you to answer back to God, O oh man? Well, what does molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable and one for dishonorable use? This is the clincher. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy? Okay, so basically what... The difficult pill to swallow that Paul is saying here is that it, it looks like God has made some for made some people for destruction and some for um, and some for mercy. We don't exactly know why He's done that. From a theological perspective, the answer is tough. From a narratological perspective, that's a long that's a big word. But let me let me. Let me help, a, help us a little bit with that. Okay, so freely chosen. So Pharaoh. Let's look at Pharaoh. Pharaoh freely chooses, even though he sees all of these amazing works of God, he keeps on like, no, I'm not going to let your people go. I'm not going to humble myself. And God allows him to make that choice, right? He allows him to do that, and then there's a hardening of his heart. And then we see this great, this amazing thing happen. He lets them go. So the people are now saved in some way. God has saved his people. But that's not the end of the story. Now, they're, now, all of a sudden, in the background, they see Pharaoh and his chariots, and they're coming at him. And I don't want to anthropomorphize God too much, but now God kind of has a choice, so to speak. I can save my people from destruction by Pharaoh, who is going to slaughter them, or I can save Pharaoh, but I can't really save them both in the free decision of Pharaoh to go and kill the people of God. So God's salvation always happens through God's judgment. We see that pattern in G- So God has to say, okay, in order to save my people in this scenario, I have got to destroy and stop Pharaoh. So he, so he makes the sea collapse upon them. God's salvation, again, we go back. The raw material of salvation. There's a story of your life that God is writing. And in the story of your life that God is writing, sin is the raw material that God uses. And that sin sometimes comes upon you. You've sinned or something has happened to you. And it is through those ugly and awful acts that God shows His love for you by saying, that was evil and that was wrong and I'm going to judge that. And in you seeing God's justice upon those evil and awful things, that is one of the ways that God brings you to Himself. So, if... That's not a... You're like, man, I don't think that helped me that much. But the pattern of salvation is always through judgment. That God judges His Son. He judges His Son. He displays His wrath. He pours out His wrath on His Son so that He can show mercy. So in the story of your life... In the story of your life, the salva- your salvation always happens because there's some ugliness or, or error or judgment that someone else has done or that you've done that God has to show His wrath and display His love for you by showing His wrath, kind of like what Richie said last night. Again, not a great answer. The answer theologically is we're not totally sure, and Paul says that in Romans 9. The answer, the, the, there's a thread of an answer narratologically that said God always displays His mercy through judgment. Yeah. I know we have to leave soon, I'm sorry. Should I let you guys go and anyone who wants to stay and ask? Let me do that, let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this time that we got to be together. I pray that you would be with all of these students and leaders and help us to grow in the knowledge and love of you, even as we wrestle with these incredibly hard and difficult topics. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.